Dr. Sabrina Njai, Whoa, right? Wow, very good. I'm impressed. Okay, I got it. That's my last name. I got it. And I know that you are a healer uh, and you called yourself a peace builder. Yes. And then finally a therapist. Now, can you explain to me, because I've been struggling a lot with my friends and I have been having many conversations about this, uh, peace of mind. Mm. And so far with how far my thinking has gone, I've realized that I mean, maybe just peace of mind is an oxymoron mm. because maybe the mind is never meant to be at peace. Mm. And it, it's, it's constantly, and, and it's the beauty in the struggle of the mind. Mm -hmm. What do you say to that? Am I wrong on that? Well, no, there's no wrong or right answer around it. But the way I teach it and the way I guide other people is, is sort of what you're saying. And that peace of mind is, is a journey. And there are always going to be disruptions to our peace. And so peace is a choice. And so we engage in practices to bring us back to that place of peace. Does that make sense? Right. So, I mean, you think of an example like this, this whole COVID thing. We were just talking about how college students had to hurry up and go home and, and no one really knew what was happening at that time. So there was a disruption to the peace. And when that disruption happens, the sympathetic nervous system gets revved up. And that's the part of the nervous system that says, go, run, fight, you know, fly away, play dead. But inner peace happens when you're out of the physical danger and you can actually breathe and be in connection with people, make different decisions and process the situation so that when it happens again, you're better prepared, but you don't have to live in this place of agitation. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you this then. It seems like people who are living in uh, war-struck areas or more mm -hmm. impoverished areas mm -hmm. usually tend to have a lower suicide rate than people who are physically at peace. So what's going on there? Because like... You know, if anything, us American kids, us Muslim Americans are mm. very spoiled. We have a lot of resources and any American really is very spoiled relative to the rest of the world. Absolutely. Yet we seem to be more drugged than any other country in the world. We mm. seem to have more depression and anxiety than the rest of the world, mm -hmm. even though we have the phys physical peace in place. What's going on there? Well, now you're talking about a whole other illness and it's an illness of, of uh, isolation like spiritual isolation. It's an illness of the perception of separation. And there's an illness that all of us, many of us in America are, are struggling with. And it's the way we worship the things that we have and the way we make comparisons. And those, those comparisons, that sense of isolation, this false notion of separation, all of these elements create inflammation in the body. And when the body is inflamed, the mind, the, the mind cannot be at peace. And so these actions of harming oneself, they're all a result of a perception of separation. And so it has nothing to do with um, whether or not people have money because you can be completely broke and, and still feel like you're a part of a community and still engage in spiritual practice that actually bring you to peace. And if you have lots of things, you may have lots of things that can distract you from being in community and from having that sense of peace. 
Ah, nice. So it's 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 the fact that we have an individualistic society. Completely. Right. Is there any way to like mend that or try to like create a virtual? Because we we live in like uh, we live in nuclear families. You know, mm -hmm. like my my parents have done a pretty good job of adding families around us mm -hmm. that are Muslim and stuff. But not everyone, no one, basically has that. So. Like, is there a way to mend that, personally? Well, what your parents did is a way to mend it. Like, that that's one way of mending it, of recognizing that we don't have to be alone. Recognizing that everyone is running around looking for connection. And that if we can just take that risk and step out of what we perceive to be our comfort zone, then we can create new families. And there's nothing new about creating a family. That's not necessarily your family of origin. That's how multiple cultures have survived horrific life experiences. But if we think that we're the only one, and that's really where we can get caught and, and end up down a really scary, slippery slope. So one of the things that I do is I facilitate a lot of groups. And in groups, people realize, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one that thinks like that. I'm not the only one that has that experience. I'm not the only one that has even thought about something as dangerous as harming myself. Wow. And there's something very healing that happens in that place of feeling validated. Because the community also has to be real. It can't be, um, when I say real, I mean, it has to be a, a place where people also feel safe and accepted. Oh, that's a big deal. It is. Okay, yeah. It yeah, is. I agree with that 100%. Because mm -hmm. we had that community going, but... Still, there was a lot of judgment, you know, a lot of uh, parents saying, because parents tend to do this all the time, where, where they blame everyone but their child for what, oh, yeah. for what it is. So we had a whole bunch of that. And what you're saying is something that I've, I've read about and listened to on TED Talks a lot, which is that when you change your perception from I, I, I to we, 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 when you realize that you're not the center of your own universe, that it's actually you are a tiny specimen looking out into a much more complex world, and you look at it from that view, life becomes a lot more beautiful. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's difficult for a lot of people because, you know, we have so many mirrors. I, I, I was watching this psychologist who talked about mirrors being an issue mm. where too many of them, like you're just sitting there staring at yourself. You oh, maybe... real physical mirrors. Yes. Oh, okay. Literally mirrors. Mm. Like we shouldn't be looking at ourselves. Like no one in past history looked at themselves constantly the uh, way we do. Yeah, that's true. We do. And so we just have this like always the sense of self going. And it's, it's very difficult to go over because then it actually leads to having self-esteem issues. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk to you about this because no one ever brought, brings it up because everyone brings up self-esteem issues. I actually am one of the people who suffer from self-appraisal mm. where my self constantly, you know, tells itself, oh, wow, you're awesome, you're amazing, you're all this. And, it, and, it's, and it's as detrimental, it's as hurtful as self-esteem. Can you walk me through that, like both of them and how... Well, yeah, they both make sense. So even if you're, even if you are constantly praising yourself, that can also be the sign. It's like the, it's the mirror, right? It is, it's actually your self-esteem is not as strong as it should be because there's this place in the middle where we always have to be mindful of, am I, am I, am I being arrogant? Am I being humble? Am I being open? Am I being closed? 
Is my heart in constriction towards other people or is it in constriction towards myself? And so it's like, so for me, spiritual practices lend itself to us coming back to asking ourselves questions. So what do you mean by spiritual uh, practices? Practices. So as a Muslim, I, I pray five times a day and I add a lot of little extra stuff to it. Um, but there's every spiritual tradition has a practice of really knowing yourself. And there's a saying, obviously, in Islam that says, when you know yourself, then you know your Lord. Mm -hmm. I actually tell people, when you know yourself, then you know what you worship. So if, if you recognize that you're constantly staring in the mirror, then I'm going to be really very politely opening a door for you to admit that that might be what you worship, your own face. Hmm. And this face, while it may be youthful when you're 25, it's going to change when you're 54. And can you love this face no matter what shape or form it takes? Can you love this body no matter what it looks like, whether it's fat or skinny, whether it's scarred or different? Can you really just love what, what's in your hands right now? And so to me, that, that, that self-love with humility is also a part of any spiritual practice. So I take people that, Muslim, non-Muslim, I don't you know, atheist, heathen, whatever you call yourself, it's fine with me. I'm like that Rumi poem, worshiper, wanderer, lover of leaving, I don't care. Um, but one of the spiritual practices that I teach people is just how to breathe, the, the breath. Is, it can be a spiritual practice, accessing the breath. You know, in, in, in Arabic is what is breath. But you can't live more than three minutes without breathing. So taking that moment and pausing and breathing, it seems so simple, but that breath allows us to access the real answers about ourselves. So I teach my clients basically how to breathe. We breathe for 10 minutes at the beginning of our sessions together. When I'm finished with my regular obligatory prayers, I sit with my breath for 10, 15 minutes. That's one practice that's really important to me. The other one is movement. And it's interesting how our five obligatory prayers involve movement, but then also just shaking, shaking for a little while can bring our nervous systems back into alignment. So I do that every day and I teach my clients to do that. Then, um, Talking to other people can be a spiritual practice. If See, I'm looking you in the eye, right? So there's a whole, there's a conversation here, there's a conversation underneath that's happening. That can also be a part of our spiritual practices. Journaling, and I don't mean like typing on your laptop because a, a lot of people just want to type. I'm, I mean taking pen to hand and writing out your thoughts, no matter how crazy they are can bring a level of self-awareness. And everything I'm sharing is sort of um, these universal practices from every tradition. Um, and we know from the research that they actually bring healing into the body. Hmm. Okay, well, how, does that also help with things like anxiety? Absolutely. Because before I've ever dealt with anxiety in my life, I always thought it was mental. I didn't really understand mm. people with anxiety that much, mm. not gonna lie. Um, and then I started having anxiety, but my anxiety, I feel like is physical. Like, I don't, I'm not thinking anything in my head, but suddenly like my body is feeling this anxiousness and my heart's starting to, to beat faster and all these things. And I'm like, 
what's happening? I'm just watching a TV show right now. Why am I feeling this way? Is, is anxiety physical and mental? Is it both? What, it is what both. Is it? it is both. And so what you're recognizing is that really there's no separation between the mind and the body. If the mind is off, the body is off. If the body is off, the mind is off. If you're sick, you can't think straight, right? You're like, I can't work. I'm sick. So that means that your physiology is impacting your mental state and vice versa. So there's no separation between the two. And the body also remembers things that happened in the past. You're like, why am I so anxious today? What's today? December 7th. I'm just throwing out a date. Ah, last year on December 7th, so-and-so happened to me. And so the body almost like, it's like our alarm clock. It's like our alarm clock and it's like, ding, 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 this happened. And maybe there's some, some loose ends you need to tie up around this thing that happened to you. You know, for most of us, when people come to me and talk about their anxiety, I want to I know where in their body do they feel it. Because more than likely, it's in the stomach and it's in the heart. Yes. Yeah. And those two, everything is in the heart. Everything starts with the heart. So I want to guide people to like slowing down and listening to their heart rate and, and engaging in activities so the heart rate goes like this instead of like this. And definitely don't want to go like that because then, then you're gone. Right. Um, so everything, everything starts with the heart. And then anxiety typically goes down into the belly or in the lower back. And so we become aware of what the body is telling us. And, some, and those answers come through all those different ways that I shared earlier. Sometimes I guide people to talk to their stomach, talk to the pain in their stomach. I used to feel an incredible amount of anxiety in my belly, but I used to feel pain on my shoulders. And I engaged in this activity that I teach where I had myself right to the pain on my shoulders. And literally, like, right to the pain. Why are you here? And the pain wrote back, I'm here because you volunteered for blah, 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 blah. And we went back and forth and back and forth. It was done. I finished the exercise. And then maybe a couple weeks later, I felt the pain in my shoulders again. And I was like, oh, oh, yeah, you told me before. And as soon as I said, literally to my own body, you're right, I'm out, I'm, I'm gonna back out of this thing that I volunteered for, I'm gonna sit down. And, and I, you could feel the pain literally dissipate. So it's like learning how to really listen to all parts of you. But that requires self-awareness. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but it <laughs> doesn't seem like many people have self-awareness. Well, many people are running from their own self-awareness. Hmm. And that is contributing to their anxiety and their pain. Hmm. Many people are running from the reality that they contribute to their pain. How so? Well, whatever we've done, whatever has happened to us. Desires. Yeah, yeah. sometimes it's desires. Sometimes it's relationships. So my favorite question I ask my clients and it doesn't mean, oh, it's, it's your fault that someone sexually assaulted you or it's your fault that this happened to you when you were a child. That's not what I mean. I mean, when we notice patterns, when we're free thinking adults and we notice specific patterns in our lives and we say, why did I end up here again? How did I end up with this kind of person again? How did I get this same job again working for this crazy person? I will say fill in the blank. I contribute to this problem when I, what is it? What have you done that has contributed to this problem? 
And when people really sit with themselves in a very safe place, because you have to be safe, they're able to name it. You know what? I was on that interview and I felt this little prickle in the back of my neck and I knew I should have left. So I was actually reading this book called With the Heart in Mind. Hmm. And it breaks down the prophet, peace be upon him, empathetic you know, mm. genius. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that the author mentions is that it's when you don't know yourself, mm-hmm. it's as uncomfortable to be in a room alone as it is if you're with a stranger. Yes. So how do you become familiar with yourself in a way where it's not uncomfortable mm-hmm. to be alone? That's a daily practice. Okay. I mean, it doesn't happen in a, in a, in a night, in an evening. And that's where our anxiety tends to step in and tries to rush it along. It's a daily practice. It's a commitment. And it's like a complete coming back. This Buddhist teacher, Tara Brock, I remember when I heard her speak the first time, she said, we engage in spiritual practices daily so we can remember what we forgot. And I said, oh, that makes sense. So it's not a one and done experience. It is a constant reawakening to a level of self-awareness that lends itself to healing. And it does involve stepping in and going into a look at yourself where you might be afraid of what you see. Right. It's a lot like, well, because I'm not, I've not, I've not been like a practicing most of my entire life. But when I started being, one of the things that really freaked me out is one day my faith was high and the next day my faith was low as it gets. It's the same thing with this, isn't it? Like every day you have to, it's a new day. It's literally a new day. You have to keep working on it. Is, Is that what it is? It is a relationship. Struggle. Yeah. But what's interesting, if you're in a relationship with someone that you love, you work at that. Oh. Right? You if you if you you know, if you step on your sister's hat, you say, I'm sorry. But we tend to not have that same level of relationship with ourselves. Wow, I, I've never looked at it like that, like a relationship with yourself. It is a relationship. Wow. That's awesome. And then, you know, no matter what people's religious faith is, I say, you know, we talk about, like, what what was loaned to you? What was loaned to you? This body was loaned to you. This mind was loaned to you. These things are, are loans. And when you borrow something from somebody and you return it to them, what does it look like? Should come back the same. Or nicer, right? Or better. Yeah. If someone borrows a book from you, and they spill coffee on it, they will typically say, oh man, I spilled coffee, I bought you a new book, right? I mean, that's what people do. But we don't have that same compassion for ourselves. We don't give ourselves that same um, opportunity to be in a relationship. And so we don't treat our bodies or our minds like it's something that was loaned to us to do something meaningful with, which is why so many people are uncomfortable being alone. When you're alone, who you're supposed to be brushes up against who you are right now. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. You know, talking to you about this reminds me of the story where the prophet, peace be upon him, was sitting with his friends Mm -hmm. and a man walks in and he goes, this is a man amongst, a man from heaven. Mm -hmm. And 
he leaves and this happens three times mm-hmm. where the guy comes in and the prophet goes, this is a man from heaven. And so one of the prophet's friends is like, I got to figure out what this man's doing. Mm. And so he he fakes an excuse and he goes and tells the man that, oh, you know, I got kicked out of the house or removed from the house, something like that. Uh, Can I stay with you for three nights? And the man goes, sure, why not? And he stays with the man. First night, he sees nothing different other than him praying five times a day. Mm -hmm. Second night, he sees nothing different again other than like, he's cooking, he's cleaning. If anything, the, the man narrated, the, the one that went and visited, that if anything, I was kind of looking at his prayer and saying, I pray a little better than this guy. Mm. You know. So by the third night, he was just like, I give up. I don't know what it is that makes this man so special. And as he's walking out, he's leaving, he's like, oh, by the way, just so I don't have this on my chest, I, I lied, I don't have anything that I have to do. This is just... Or, or I wasn't kicked out of my house. I just wanted to see why the prophet, peace be upon him, mm. said that you're a man from heaven. Mm. And he said, yeah, I don't, I don't know. There's nothing that I do that's special. And he's like, I know, right? That's what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> and so the guy like kept walking and then the house owner was like, wait, wait, hold on. I, I think I have something for you. He says, every night before I go to sleep, I forgive everyone. I, and I sit down before I go to sleep and make sure that I forgive everyone and I go to sleep with a peaceful heart. And I decided to put that into practice and, and it's helped my anxiety personally a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting how the Quran mentions that when you find Islam, when you find God, you become successful in this world and the next. Mm-hmm. And, and this is how, it, it's kind of like a win-win situation where when you sit down and do spiritual practices, like you're saying, and it requires every day, when you, when you sit down and you think, like I try to do this when I'm in the car as much as possible, where I'll go, thank you, and I'm talking to God for my eyes, thank you for this car, thank you for this, and I, and I just go on and go on and go on until I'm... I'm really just like out of out of things to thank for, mm-hmm. even though I know there's much more. And I try every once in a while to to forgive everyone before I go to sleep. It, it's it's beautiful, and it's really nice hearing you say that. Oh, forgiveness is is so critical, and there is no religion that does not have the practice of forgiveness embedded in it. Oh yeah, and it is it is critical, and it's it's a hard walk to forgive someone. It is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some some nights I'll, I'll forgive that person, and the next night I'm like, I need to re-forgive them. Yes. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah, it's not a one and done, like like nothing else. Nothing else is the one and done. Yeah, no. Desmond Tutu writes uh, that sometimes you have to, he wrote this thing called the prayer before the prayer. It's like, I really want to forgive you, so I'm praying that at some point I can. Because <laughs> hmm. I'm not there yet. Because <laughs> things happen to us that are really, really egregious. Yeah. And and it's hard to forgive. And a lot of kids nowadays, especially my age, my generation, they don't even deal with the things that we don't even deal. I don't I'm not going to separate myself from yeah. them. We don't even deal with the things that we go through. We just stuff it down with drugs and alcohol and girls and and desires and all of these things and we just we we push them down. We push them down and those things are going to come up or at least they come up in our day-to-day interactions. Mm-hmm. What do you say to us? Like, how do we deal with this? Oh, that's a big question. The number one thing I tell people your age is to get off social media. Oh, why is that? Um, that's, that's your drug. That's your real drug. 
that's like an opiate because it takes you, you know, unlike, I, I've worked with addicts for many years, but the, the social media is a real nice little opiate. Like it like takes you away mm. and you can get lost in it, right? Yeah. And, and it, it's like, but it's also something that you need. Like we're all in it. Like it is how we stay connected. But if it's out of balance, it can take you to a pretty dark space. And one thing that I, I was just telling a, a young person, maybe yesterday or day before, um, that when you stay on social media past a specific amount of time, you start to compare your worst to someone else's best. And when you, as soon as you do that, you're going down that dark path. And once you're in that path, then then you start finding all these other ways to disengage, to numb yourself out, to not be in reality. And it brings out the worst in us, in oh. a way. It brings out seeking attention. Mm -hmm. uh, it brings out seeking confirmation from others, judging others a lot of the time, and feeling judged, caring about what, what people think of us, whether it even exists or not. It's it, it really, it's coming to think about it as you're saying it, that's really... So then what's the question? Like, what are you worshiping? And all those things. We can worship what other people think. That's a big one. I know a lot of Muslims struggle with that, what other people think. Is my scarf right? white? Is my kid like this? Da, 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 right? We struggle with that. You, you, can, you can worship the adoration of others. You can, I mean, those likes. Oh, my God, you only got 52 likes. You know, we, 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 we worship these elements that are wrapped in social media. So every day is a practice of even letting go of the attachment to that. And that is a conscious spiritual practice. So what we're really doing is moving everything that was in the unconscious into our conscious awareness. And only then can we change them. And it seems like anything can be a God. Seems anything. Like, like, I know a lot of my Arab friends are really into cars. You can spend way too much time on cars. You can spend way too much on your computer, fixing computers. Even even the things that are supposed to be like really awesome for you, really mm -hmm. good for you, like coding and all these things, can actually be your biggest enemy towards finding yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And one of the biggest things is a lot of weed smokers. A uh, lot. A lot. <laughs> a lot. There's a lot, yeah. I, I don't even... I can't... I've lost track. Oh, yeah. I mean... Basically, most people that I know smoke weed, mm -hmm. and it becomes your it becomes your god because there's no way around it because you're always thinking of it. Or if you're not even smoking it, you're like, ooh, if I if I did this, if I went to the amusement park while high, that'd be pretty awesome. Like you're thinking of different creative ways of doing it. You're always constantly thinking about it. And I was telling my friend the other day that's that's really trying to take the next step in his life. Um, because I had to at some point. Mm -hmm. I told him that that weed takes up that spot that God needs mm -hmm. and, and there's no way around that mm -mm. you have to let go of it in order to really get to the next step in your life mm -hmm. and a lot of kids that smoke weed don't think that they can live without it yeah you they know don't. but I want to I want to offer a little bit of, of insight around the weed too remember when I was showing you how we, how we take a breath and that stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system. So when we're anxious, when we're afraid, when we're running, our sympathetic nervous system is activated. The breath activates the parasympathetic, and that is where we go into a state of relaxation and ease and connection. It ties into this part of the brain. So the smoke is a desire to bring in that kind of breath. 
you know, breathe, inhaling, let it, let it go all around to the, go all the way down to the base of the lung. So I validate that for people. I validate that. What you're desiring is a place to ease your anxiety. Wow, my friend was just saying that to me yesterday. Mm -hmm. He said, I don't even like the weed. I like the smoke that I ingest. Mm -hmm. I told him that's just oral asphyxiation, but I guess, no, that's even deeper than that. No, his, his innate wisdom is telling him, when I take that breath, and even when I'm breathing in the smoke, there is, you're setting into motion a physiological change in the body. And so I guide people, what would happen if you just did the breath without the smoke? Hmm. That's awesome. I mean, we're, this COVID thing is a disease of, of, of our breath. Right. So it's like the earth is trying to catch its breath. We, we're talking about people being murdered in the streets, crying, I cannot breathe. And how do we run from that is we try to breathe. So we're like running from it. And the weed is a way to run. And everybody is smoking. It's legal now. So it's not like, you know, no one's going to put you in prison for smoking weed. Yeah, everyone's smoking weed and out, drinking alcohol more than ever because of yeah. COVID. Yeah. I think depression's on the rise. Like, well, what I'm finding, more than ever. Yeah, what I'm finding is that wherever people were before COVID, if you were like smooth, all right, up and down, then you're smooth, all right, up and down now. But if you were down here like not even functioning very well before covid covid's wiped it out so i'm seeing a lot of more sicker people but my clients that have like been seeing me for a while and and working through their issues they're really they're doing okay right and i mean a lot of people like a lot of muslims don't go to therapy they do because it, and this is an even bigger problem that it would take hours for us to discuss which is which is the problem with our community judging others for having mental issues for mm -hmm. having emotional problems and, and something that islam actually directly talks against and our prophet peace be upon him directly talks against through his actions mm -hmm. honestly like one thing that was beautiful that i read is how the prophet constantly through his actions would show us to he, he would cry in front of a culture in front of a, a society and generation that thought that crying was unmanly and this was the leader of the time and he was crying so openly and they would tell him prophet what is this and he would go this is empathy this is this is care this is love and he kept showing over and over again it's okay to cry it's okay to kiss your daughter kiss your wife and mother in front of others it's okay to hug them love them give them appreciation in front of others it's not it doesn't make you less manly and i want to say this to every muslim every non-muslim actually because there's a lot of men that are non-muslim that think like this too it doesn't make you less manly to show your emotions it, it really doesn't and it makes actually a lot of that's that's the biggest reason why I personally think that men commit suicide at a higher rate. So how do we deal with this depression thing? Because a lot of the times, at least for me, thankfully, I was able to dig myself out through self-awareness and what mm -hmm. everything that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But I would wake up in the morning and I'm like, I don't even want to brush my teeth. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't want to brush my teeth. I didn't want to shower. I didn't even want to do. But, like, if you looked at me from the outside, you'd be like, this is a guy that works out, doing good in school, mm -hmm. last year in college, uh, plays sports, all of these things. It's like, oh, yeah, he's successful starting this podcast. None of it mattered. I didn't want to wake up in the morning. I didn't want to do what I have to do. What, what What's going on there? So there's always a lot of things going on there. 
You know, it's not just one thing. And so it's not just one avenue that we take to address it. But you touched on one one small but big piece is what the Prophet was really telling people to do is to access a range of emotion. When you can access a range of emotion, you actually, like I said, all the time I'm teaching people how to decrease inflammation in their body. So if you're experiencing sorrow and it goes unexpressed, it's literally going to show up as inflammation in your body. If you're experiencing joy and it's expressed too much into a false way, you're literally going to impact your heart rate. So the healthiest of us, emotionally, physically, and spiritually, we can say, you know what, in this moment I am sad. And to notice how sadness feels. And then let sadness, excuse me, let it go right through us. Oh, wow, I feel happy right now. It's temporary. It's temporary because happiness is going to leave too. And to say, you know, I feel angry. And then when people tell me that they feel anger, I want to say, okay, so what's under the anger is either hurt or fear. Which one is it for you? And these are emotions that men are not allowed to say, I'm scared. But when I get men alone, they close the door. They're like, I'm scared. Like, this is, this is deep. And if you live your entire life with this backlog of tears, very often with men, they show up. Those tears show up in the form of rage. But if you're able to express them, they don't have to be violent. And that violence is very often turned against the self. Wow. That's... It's funny that you say that because when my friend recently passed away, mm-hmm. if I've never, I'm not really much of a crier, mm-hmm. just like most men, and I cried my eyes out for months over him. And in the weirdest Good. way, I felt better than I ever have before. Even though it was my, my friend's death, even I felt better than when I did before. I don't want to say it like that, but like when I would, couldn't wake up at in the morning and do my thing, mm-hmm. me crying over him helped me be able to. I used I, I'm, I now wake up and I'm excited for the day. Yeah. Because I la- I allowed everything out, and I don't. How do we How do we get past this as men? What What do we do? Well, it's interesting, you know. Even that example you had of the prophet, peace be upon him. A lot of people don't know about that. There's still, I mean, there's this rampant assumption that men are not supposed to express these strong emotions. They're not supposed to shed tears. They're not supposed to be vulnerable in relationship. And I think the best way to do it is to do it, is to be it, live it, express it daily. One of the, one of the, the, the um, teachings, one of the, the classes I used to teach is live forgiveness daily. I've sort of fallen off with that Facebook page, but but live forgiveness day like every single day. Express a sorrow. I think that's another Rumi poem. He talks about the guest house. You know, let 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 every emotion just come in, even if they come to your house and tear stuff up. I'm totally paraphrasing Rumi, right? But just let them come in. Let every emotion come in. But how do we do it? Is we we live it and we model it. Hmm. It, it reminds me of just just this one part of the verse in the Quran, and I'm not saying this is the tafsir for it or the annotation yeah, no, no. of it, but where God says, where He's saying, and, and you cry, uh, and you laugh, and you do not cry. 
it's it's God calling us out over it. It's, it's it's important. It's very important. But at the same time, I think humanity leans towards sadness sometimes a little too much. And some people I've noticed around in my life personally, because I can't speak for the rest of the world, they feed off of the sadness. Mm -hmm. They enjoy the sadness. They live in that sadness. And even once they, life gives them an, a way to get out of the sadness. Like, no, 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 let me, let me. This put is what my, I'm used to. Yeah. Well, what's going on there? Or how, what, what's oh, happening? It's complete and utter fear. I said to someone the other day, I said, who would you be if you didn't have any more resentments? He got mad at me. What kind of question is that? What would I be if I didn't have any resentments? You know I'd be a better person. I'm just wondering because, you know, you got a whole long list of them. What if you just let one go? Because this person was literally wallowing in sorrow and sadness and grief and this is wrong and that is wrong. It's like, you don't have to be perfect at this, but what if we just made a decision to let go of one of those resentments? Just one. What would happen? I think it happens a lot with people. And it's, I think it's a lot of the times great gratitude is missing. Mm -hmm. And gratitude leads it. Like, I think anger is the opposite of gratitude. Yeah. And... People think that the pursuit of happiness, because of John Locke and, and the way that Western philosophy and Western thought has evolved, it's become happiness. This is now our virtue. Happiness. I, I've been trying to tell my friends recently, you should never try to succeed or become happy because happiness is an emotion that goes away just like sadness and anger and, and all other emotions go away. Mm -hmm. What you should be striving for is an attitude and it's called gratitude. Absolutely. And, and that's how it goes. And there's a beautiful saying that I heard at a Friday prayer once where he said, don't be happy because you're, no, don't be grateful because you're happy. Be happy because you're grateful. Mm. So how does one, you know, accomplish gratitude and leave that anger let it go even that is a daily process i remember years ago this imam said to us he said if you're not sure what to thank allah for just start with your feet hmm. and let that one day be you expressing gratitude for having feet okay. so you know one thing that I, I again it's a daily daily process there has to be one thing and if you're not sure be grateful for your vital organs, for the color of your hair, the, the shape of, of this home that you live in. Like, whatever it is, there are things all around us to be grateful for. And I've worked in, I've worked all over the world, and I've worked in places where people had nothing material. And they've been so happy and so generous and so willing to share. So it's really an attitude. And, and you're right, it's every single day. But I think the phrase Alhamdulillah that we just like throw out all day long, like it, it, it involves us pausing and really taking it in. What does that mean? Right. What does that really, really mean? You know, even when, because what it, a lot of audience members probably don't know, Alhamdulillah is both thanks and praise towards God. Yeah. So not only like when, when we had to reschedule when the podcast didn't work out the first time. You know, I felt like I was like, oh, so upset with myself. Mm. And I had to say that to myself. I had to remind myself, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, mm -hmm. right? It, because in that moment, I reminded myself, not only am I thanking you for this moment, I am praising your wisdom 
over this moment, even though it's a terrible moment for me, I am praising you because this might have been the best thing for us in this situation, which is a very difficult thing. And you can, you're still allowed to be angry in that moment, Mm -hmm. but it really helps you get over it. It really does. Yeah. But honoring the wisdom in the moment is also key. There's a wisdom in these times that we're living in, and we may not like it. We may not like that there is, like, we feel fire in our bellies, and we're, we're scared, and we're upset. And there's wisdom in that fire. Right, and I think that is a lot of the times the problem with humanity is that we don't see the wisdom behind God's decrees and God's Mm -hmm. words for example the very scarf that you have over your head Mm -hmm. a lot of people are like why the hijab why the hijab why the Mm -hmm. hijab why the scarf and there's a lot of wisdom behind it there's a lot of things that go behind it just like you were saying how social media is so social media really became prevalent in 2010 Mm -hmm. and you see the rise of suicide in women even though women are historically not known to to commit suicide nearly at the rate of men but they're starting to catch up Oh, yeah. And the reason is his body image issues. Mm-hmm. Social media is really conflict, really adding to the fire with mm-hmm. that. And a lot of the Muslim women that I know that are, that are, whether scarves or not, but with their faith intact, I haven't found these body image issues as deeply. Everyone at the end of the day has body image, mm-hmm. you know, insecurities, but not to the point of anorexia or bulimia or any of these really, really drastic things that are, that are you know, it's not their fault that, that they're in this situation. What do you say to those girls? Because I, I don't want this just to be like a male dominant, you know? <laughs> what do you say to the, these girls, both Muslim and non-Muslim? The, I'm gonna make sure I get the question. You wanna know what I say to, to young women that are struggling with their body image? Right, their- right, because you know, young women are, Muslim women are struggling with the hijab Mm-hmm. You know, walking around as a stranger in this world, mm-hmm. and even the ones that are Muslim but but not wearing the hijab are still suffering through a different kind of Western body image issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know this is a deep one. Yeah, it is. So there is some similarities in in the question, and there's like some vast differences. And I can't speak for every woman that I work with. Um, and I work with a lot of Muslims come to me for therapy. A lot. I've That's been, good. Yeah, I mean, a lot. Um, my practice used to be around the corner from the masjid, and I mean, 12 years I was in that space, and now I'm doing remote from home. Um, and I, I can only speak for myself around the hijab. I don't even know if I'm considered hijabi, but, you know, I wear my, I wear my scarf, and I, I actually put the scarf on for social political reasons. Really? Yes. I felt like people were... Um, judging other Muslim women in a scarf and I was not wearing one and they felt very free in um, making assumptions about other Muslims and and I knew they liked me and they they really loved me and so I I began to wear my scarf for that reason and then I kept it on. Why did you keep it on? Oh well then I just got really comfortable with it it just became like a part of me and it was actually, believe it or not, a Jewish man that inspired me to keep it on. I know, if we're, if we're listening, Allah will show us the signs in everybody's walk. But I was at this conference and this Jewish man, who's this interfaith thing, and this Jewish man was talking and he said, I wear this thing on my head so that I never forget that there's something above me. And I was like, oh, that's a really good reason. 
magnificent. I like it. <laughs> so that allowed me to just gently leave it on without moving it, without changing it, without making explanation for it. And I travel in a lot of places where I'm the only black person, I'm the only African-American, I'm the only Muslim, I'm the only everything. And, and so the, the scarf is like this wonderful, I have found it to be a deep connector between me and the other people in the room. Other Muslim women may find it that it, it creates separation, but I think that that's what's, that's like an indicator of what's happening in you physio physi physiologically. If you're not completely comfortable in what you've done, then you can't wear it. Which is why I don't impose it on people. You gotta know yourself and know when this is something that is for you. And, and I knew from my own prayers it was time for me to do it. And I can literally look in my journal where it says, I think it might be time. I'm gonna wear my scarf. And then I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm going to wear it this way. I'm going to wear it that way. I'm going to wear it this day and not that day. I'm going to wear it to work. And I'm, I'm not going to wear it to work. But I'm going to wear it to this party. Like, I did all that. And what was going on there? Where it was it self-conscious issues? Was Yeah, it was like, I am about to change my entire way of being in the world. Oh, yeah. Right? And it was right after 9-11. Uh, right A lot of Muslim women took off their scarf. I put mine on after 9-11. Hmm. I know your whole generation, y'all were babies when this happened. Some of you but were we even lived born. in the aftermath. You lived in the aftermath which of is it. A yes, horrible exactly. Yeah. So I was in it when it happened, and I was like, I need to make a decision. And I went back and forth, not that long, and then I just said, you know what, I'm gonna do it. And then I went back and forth about going back to work. Like after I had children, I was going back to work. Oh, do I want? How do I want to stand out? And so I, I realized that it's really like how we feel in our own body that then dictates our level of comfort in looking, feeling, being the other. And it's really, in my opinion, adding on to that, your relationship with God. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if your relationship with God has reached a certain level, and that's why I always, that's why God always explains his, the path to him, a path. Once you reach a certain destination, a certain location on that path, that's, that's when you're ready. But, and that's why a lot of Muslims should, and it's not frequent, a lot of people try to, this is a stereotype that I would like to debunk right now, which is that most, they try to say that we force Muslim women to put on the scarf. That's not true for most cases. Right. I'm not saying there's not families that do that, there's definitely families that do that, but in most cases, they don't. Actually, my sister, uh, she was like, I'm going to wear the hijab, and she was only 11. Mm. My parents were like, no, mm. <laughs> you're too young. Like, like enjoy mm -hmm. your youth a little bit. You know, mm -hmm. my mom didn't wear the hijab until she got married. My grandma didn't wear the hijab until she was 40. Mm -hmm. You know, and they were Muslim their entire life. My sister in America, after 9-11, wanted to wear the hijab at 11. And my parents were like, no, don't. And like, like they pleaded with her, and she said no. Her relationship with God was there at 11. And honestly, she's remained consistent. Mm. Like, she's never turned back around. Like, she, she's great with that, honestly. But wait until your relationship with God is at a certain point for everything. It, like, when the prophet, peace be upon him, tells us to take on the religion slowly, it, it's, it's a prophetic message to it. If yes. you just... If you just entered the religion, don't tell me you're suddenly going to grow a beard and stop listening to music and start only wearing Eastern clothing in a Western world and all this stuff. It's like, relax. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> you know? the thing. That's the key to mental health is to be is to be relaxed. And that's the key. What you're talking about is really how you know yourself. And it comes back to that question that we started. It was, what do you worship? 
if the if the guy that you worship is a nut job, is a masochist, then you'll wear your scarf and you still won't be comfortable in your body. If the if the guy that you love is full of Rahman, Rahim, Latif, Wadud, then you're like, huh, I wonder if you think it's time for me to do this. And literally you will hear the voice say, yeah, it's time. Or no, not yet, because you haven't done this, this, this yet. And that's a, that's a very personal, internal conversation. And if you have a guide, you know, if you, I, I tell people, you know, you, you should defer to someone that you trust. Then you can discern whether what is time for what with you. You know, there's, there's a time to do everything. So. And those conversations should be held in private. Absolutely. They should not be in public. No. And no one can decide for you. Right. No one can decide for you. And I want to just highlight that those words, that the way you just described God with Rahman, Rahim, Latif, all these things is actually... Wadud. 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 That's my number one name. <laughs> I'm messing with you. <laughs> uh, all of these involve yeah. compassion, mercy, love, oh. care, shelter, sustenance. Even, you know, the word Rahma comes from um, the, womb. the womb. Yeah. Right. And the womb is, if you look at it in context, it's a mother giving love, care, sustenance, food, shelter, water to a baby that doesn't even know it. The baby that doesn't even acknowledge the mother's existence, but the mother is still doing that. And, and God tells us in the Quran that he's closer to us than our own mothers, than our own jugular veins. Yeah. So we need to stop looking at, I know a lot of Westerners try to say, oh, religion is that. When they say religion, they're really talking about their own Christian mm -hmm. or Christian Judeo background. But... In Islam, that's not like that. Our God is very loving. Our God is very caring. And I want to jump into another thing because I, I think this goes very well hand in hand with it, which is, I'm going to throw this question at you, and it's a big one. I've been throwing big questions at you. That, like that. That's fine. Why do people, and I need to understand this in my life, why do people commit suicide? Hmm. Well, there's no one particular reason. But the global reason that I have witnessed is a false notion of separation. People get to the point where they believe that there is nothing left for them. That they have, that they have no more choice. And what leads them to that? Like... I feel like a lot of people have suicidal thoughts. I've personally had suicidal thoughts before. I mean, in many ways, it was a joking way mm -hmm. to myself. But I've never even came close to physically or mentally preparing myself to do so. Like, that takes a lot out of someone. It really, like, it takes a lot of pain yeah. to do so, that. So there's a thought that says, oh, my gosh, I just want to die. That's not a suicidal thought. Oh, okay. That's like, I'm tired of this. I'm, I'm, in, I'm uncomfortable. I'm in pain. I, you know, that's not a suicidal thought. A suicidal thought is, I want to die. I want to take this knife. I want to take this drink. I want to raise the windows in this car. Those are, those are suicidal thoughts. That's like, I have an idea in my mind. That's different from I just want to die. That the translation for that is I'm in pain, I want it to stop. Okay. A suicidal thought is I'm in pain, 
I want it to stop, and I know how to make it stop. So there's a bit of a difference in there. It's a huge difference. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we all have like, oh God, I just want to die. You know, because I just want to be out of this situation. I want to be out of this situation. I want to be in this other situation. And, and for many people, they get the guidance that they need when they're in that place, when they're in that situation, and someone can lift them out of that and put them and help guide them to this other place that is a place of healing. But the only way we can heal is to step into this place and step into what scares the crap out of us. And so people who are in this place of, you know, having suicidal ideation, they have, they have fallen into this notion that there's nothing else for them. But I've been thinking about this a lot around, and, and I don't, you know, there might be some Muslim that will argue with me, but that's, that's their choice. I am not totally convinced that suicide is a sin because of this person's death. Because I believe in I believe in Ya Rahman, Ya Rahim. And I believe that Allah knows like all the elements, that the mercy is so expansive that Allah can see. Yeah, this happened to you, that happened to you, and it makes sense. Why I believe it's a sin is not because of that person. It's what's left over here the depth of the sorrow that people who are left behind experience is so deep and so long-lasting that it impacts multiple generations and that is why i believe it is a sin right and which is very different than condemning this person in a way that doesn't serve their heart we have to continue to pray for people even they've done something as horrible as suicide. This is my belief. Exactly. And and I'll add on to that, that I think there is wisdom in everything that God has said, there's a lot of wisdom to it. And mm -hmm. he said it's it's a huge sin to commit suicide. It's 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 a it's a detrimental, it's it's a terrible sin. But in many ways some of the wisdom behind that is deterrence. Right. A lot of Muslims I see under the comments saying, I would commit suicide if it wasn't for the fear of God. I would, it's so many of them. Like I was sitting there like, oh my God. Mm. But we should always condemn the act of suicide because we want our loved ones to stay alive. But I agree with you that once it, if it does happen, then it is not our role as a community or as family members to judge that person because let's bring up something that many Muslim communities some mosques some funeral homes that are Muslim that wash mm -hmm. the death which is a uh, uh, the dead which is obligatory for someone to be washed before mm -hmm. they get won't accept someone for being a, from suicide and we'll add on for for murdering someone for for being murdering oneself or murdering others these are not sin they are sins but they're not sins that remove you from Islam. They're not sins that remove you from being Muslim. And when I found that one of my friends committed suicide, mm. the first thing that happened is, is that no one knew. Mm. You know, no one knew how he died because because his parents had to keep it a their parents had to keep it a secret. Uh, 
out of fear that the community wouldn't pray for them, mm-hmm. wouldn't judge them, the funeral home wouldn't cleanse him, the mosque wouldn't accept him or sponsor his funeral. And I was saying they're like, this isn't right. This this isn't this isn't what God or the Prophet, peace be upon him, asked us to do. And imagine, so imagine being the parent, the loved one of that person and holding that secret. So everything that we hold inside of us, it is going to manifest in the body. It's going to be a rash. It's going to be a heart condition. It's going to be chronic kidney failure. It's going to be diabetes. Like all of these things manifest as illness. Shame is the biggest killer of our bodies. So that sort of ties into what I'm saying is like why it's such a sin is because of what the long range impact of it. So now this family is, is like shrouded in shame. They, you know, they can't function. They can't get the support. They can't get the love. That is why it's a sin. That, that's, and, it, and it's sometimes like one of the mothers of um, one of the most recent African-American men that killed them, uh, that died from police brutality. Mm-hmm. She said something very like heart striking, which is that I didn't, it didn't hurt me as much that he died as much as it did about what the media was saying about him afterwards. Yeah. It's the same thing for suicide, for mothers right. and fathers whose, whose, whose children committed suicide. Not only are, do they have to go through the greatest pain of all, which is their child has just removed themselves from this world consciously, or that their child has died in general in, in the yeah. first place. But that now that they can't go talk to their sister, they can't go talk to their mom or, or their family members or, or the community around them. They can't even let out that piece. It, it's horrible. And, and I'll finish this off, and you can finish this off with one more, but I'll say my last piece on this. That there are two hadiths. Hadiths is, is something that happened or a saying of the Prophet. Mm-hmm. One is, is that the Prophet looked at a man and, and everyone was looking at him. Uh, in war, and they were like, this man is great. Look at his warrior self. He's doing mm. such a great job. Mm. And the prophet, peace be upon him, said, this is a man from hell. Mm. And they were like, what? And then later on in the battle, the man got injured, and without even thinking, just decided, oh, my, this this physical pain is too much. I'm going to kill myself. Mm. And so he committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And so Muslims use that hadith of someone who committed suicide based off of physical pain and bring that to someone who just went through mental and emotional pain, which is a completely different battle. It's completely different. And there's another hadith for that, another saying, which is a man migrated to the prophet mm-hmm. in Medina. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, his migration w- was with Tuf- a, a sahaba, a, a friend of the prophet named Tufayl. And he got sick when he reached Medina and he got very ill and he entered depression and a deep depression. And so he cut off his fingers mm. and let himself bleed out. This is mm. during the time of the prophet, peace be upon him. And so the next, at some point, Tufail, the guy that traveled with this man, got a dream at night. And in that dream, it was this man in heaven. Mm. And he said, what happened to you? He goes, it was told to me that because of your migration to Medina, we have forgiven what you've done. Mm. But to fight and realize that there's a wrapping around this man's hand. And he said, what about your hand? He said, well, God said, or it was told to me 
that I, we will not give you back what you took away. And so the prophet, peace be upon him, when he heard that, he immediately made dua, made mm -hmm. prayer to the man and said, and return to him his hand, return to him his hand, return to him his hand three times. So the prophet prayed for him. Absolutely. So. And that's pretty much all we need to know. You know, how do we bestow mercy? How do we see people instead of in this, this one little tiny sphere? How do we expand our vision? and see people in the context of their entire lives, not just around this one thing that they've done. And that requires a daily, hourly commitment to spiritual practices. It is not, it, it is not easy, but that, that, that lens of mercy shifts the way we see everything. Yeah. Thank you so much, Doctor. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This Thank was you, awesome. Thank you, <laughs> right. yeah. Have a good one. Bye, guys.